Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The Horseshoe Falls at night, as they are going to appear, starting tonight at 9 o'clock for 15 minutes each hour. It's an incredible light display, red, white, and blue, and uh, Mayor Jim Diodati of Niagara Falls, Ontario, is going to explain to us why that is. And the mayor is back with us, Mayor Jim Diodati of Niagara Falls, New York. Also with us, the mayor of Niagara Falls, New York, Robert Restaino. Both mayors have been guests on this program on two previous occasions that we've talked about reopening of the land border. And tomorrow, as you know by now, Americans will be able to drive into Canada. They'll have to be vaxxed and they'll have to satisfy the CBSA and the regulations. But Americans will be able to drive into this country. We, though, will not be able to drive into the United States, at least not for some time, maybe days, maybe longer, according to the Biden administration. Mayor Ristaino, Mayor Diodati, thanks very much for coming back on, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, Mayor Diodati, since I've mentioned the red, white, and blue display at Horseshoe Falls at nighttime, starting at 9 o'clock tonight, tell us about that, please. Uh, yeah, well, we're, we're thrilled, Roy, that we're able to finally, after a year and a half, be able to welcome back our American friends and to honor the opening of the border in something that has never happened. It's never been closed for this period of time, even after 9-11. Uh, and it's been uh, devastating in so many ways. Economically, it's uh, divided families. It's separated people from their property. It's had a, a lot of negative effects and consequences. And we're thrilled that now, finally, we've come up with a, a way and a means whereby fully vaccinated Americans who test negative can once again come into Canada. They can visit their families. There's grandparents who haven't seen their grandkids. People have missed weddings and funerals and all sorts of important things and they'll be able to visit their properties. Last year, we had some major Lake Erie storms that had some serious damage to, to property along the lakeshore of Lake Erie. They'll be able to once again come and visit us, and of course, people that want to start doing the tourist things can also once again. So tonight, at the top of every hour, starting at 8, um, uh, I'm sorry, starting at 9 to 9.15, and for 15 minutes, the falls will be red, white, and blue to honor our guests returning once again to Canada. It's an amazing photograph. Again, it's on my Twitter feed at the Roy Green Show, and I'm sure it's elsewhere, including the city of Niagara Falls website. Uh, Mayor Restaino, it's one way. It's Americans having the opportunity to come to Canada as long as they're vaxxed and and negative as far as COVID is concerned. But uh, the U.S. border remains closed to us. I know that doesn't particularly make you happy. No, I, well, let me say first, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to be with you and my friend, Mayor Jim Diodati. I, I have to say that certainly um, the level of opening to Americans coming to Canada, while I know Mayor Diodati and I would like to see the gates open wide for all fully vaccinated, while there are conditions, it's better than what um, is currently being advocated by the American government. So I'm happy that our... our uh, those of us in America that have uh, those needs to get into Canada are able to do it. I, I, you know, it was a few months back that uh, Mayor Diodati and I were yammering about, uh, please let the Canadian government tell us what the rules are. Um, some rules have come out. While there are still some hurdles to, to jump over, 
uh, it's certainly better than no rules, which is what's happening right now coming out of Washington. And, and to be honest with you, it's just frustrating because uh, we wanted to get to this point. Uh, we think we thought that we were, uh, and now we're not. And so I, I don't have any good answers. I know that some of our, many of our federal representatives um, continue to push for answers. Um, for me, uh, the sooner we can simply open uh, the border to fully vaccinated uh, Canadians and Americans to freely travel, they're already considering those kinds of things for air travel. It, to me, it's just madness. Yeah, and the economic repercussions continue to mount, and so now one side you can come in, the other side you can't yet. Just doesn't make any sense. It sounds to me like there wasn't anywhere near enough communication taking place. Um, are you hearing anything, Mayor Restaino, from uh, from Washington about when the border, land border, may open to Canadians? No. In fact, I remember a conversation that I had with Mayor Diodati a few months ago where he and I talked about the fact that everything just seemed so murky, so so uh, cloudy, and that's really where I'm still at on this side of the border. It's just there. I, I would welcome even the kinds of conditions that are currently set to allow Americans to go into Canada. I would at least welcome that the other way because it's better than nothing. And right now we have nothing. And I can tell you that you know we keep getting the same kind of. Um, uh, information that was coming out uh, uh, previously, uh, even with the, with, with the Canadian government, that, well, you know, we're considering nobody wants this to not be smart and safe. But for God's sake, it, there's got to be a better way than just say, no, we're not going to do this. We're all moving in the right direction. So let's just um, go the next step. Let's let fully vaccinated people move freely across the border. Right. Mayor Diodati, the final word is yours. Well, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, and Mary Stano always nails it on the head. I mean, right now you can fly to the U.S. as long as you can show proof of vaccination and a negative test. Uh, we know that airports are no safer than land crossings. We just want to see a transparent plan. A lot of businesses on both sides of the border are counting on us getting it right, and that's all we're asking. Let's make sure the left hand and the right hand are communicating show us the plan, and then let's implement the plan. Because a lot of people are counting on us politically getting this right. And I think both sides of the border have uh, made a point of getting vaccinations. We know vaccinations are working. And if you're only allowing people fully vaccinated to cross with a negative test, I don't see that as a risk to either side. Today, the Olympic Games in Tokyo ended. Kelsey Mitchell won a gold in track cycling. She's from Sherwood Park, Alberta, and uh, Kelsey only started track cycling four years ago. That's an amazing accomplishment. Incredible accomplishment by our athletes in Tokyo. 24 medals, seven golds. I go back to 1976, and I think about that year where the Olympics were held in, in Canada, of course, in Montreal. And Canada that year was the only hosting nation for Summer Olympics in the history of the Olympics, that didn't win a gold. We've come a long way since 1976. My next guest knows about winning medals for Canada. He won Canada's first Olympic medal in the 100-meter freestyle in London, the 2012 Olympic Games. He was in Tokyo, his fourth 
Olympic encounter. And it's an incredible story, the story of Brent Hayden, 38 years of age, retired for seven years, and then decided to return to competitive swimming and qualified at the Canadian Olympic trials. Brent, thank you for coming on the program. You're still the fastest uh, 100-meter freestyler in Canada, aren't you? Yes, I, I still have the Canadian record. Congratulations. No, thank you. What was that like? What was the experience like? In oh, it, it was amazing. I mean, um, with the pandemic and everything and the games being, um, you know, postponed, you know, there was just this greater sense of appreciation of the opportunity when you've realized how close we've come to, to not having it. So I think a lot of athletes were, were feeling that in Tokyo. So I've been doing quite a bit of reading about you, and uh, I knew about your medal in 2012. I keep track of who wins for Canada. It's something that, that matters to me. Uh, I have such admiration for the, uh, for the athletes and all we give, personally, the sacrifices you make. But here you are, third Olympic Games in London. You win the first Olympic medal for Canada in the 100-meter freestyle. And a few days later, you announce your retirement. And you wrote earlier this year, I was putting an end to the worst year of my life. How was that the worst year of your life? Yeah, it's kind of hard to think that, you know, winning an Olympic medal could have come at, at such a bad time. But honestly, it was just my chronic back spasms were just getting more and more frequent. So while I'm trying to train and I'm still seeking that Olympic medal, you know, it was, it was my third Games. I hadn't medaled, um, you know, missed big opportunities already at Athens and uh, Beijing. And I just kept seeing that medal chance slip away from me. But then outside of the pool, uh, my personal life actually became very toxic, and um, you know, I I was getting married. You know, I was uh, planning of planning our wedding. Um, so, like, but it was out. Everyone like out around us was seemed. I, I shouldn't say everyone, but like select people around us be, became very toxic. So I'm sitting there trying to plan a wedding that was going horribly, and then I'm trying to train for a medal that was going horribly, and yeah, I, I just didn't see any end to to that and i just i just wanted to put an end to it and i was ready for the next stage of my life yeah i don't think people understand the pressures that an athlete a successful athlete uh, has to deal with and, and we're just now for example we're finding out about some of the mental health issues simone biles in tokyo um you say you were you're having physical issues and then you were in a personal toxic environment physically struggling as you were about to enter the pool for an olympic event what, yeah, I mean, talk like, to us um, about talk to us about the the emotional stresses that go along with being a successful athlete. I mean, you you've got that expectation of from others, um, you know, weighing on you. Like when I went into the London Games, like I said, I didn't I didn't medal at the two previous ones, so like I had my own uh, expectations. But I could also feel the weight of the country's uh, expectation because I had stood on the podium at every single level of international competition, but I failed at the Olympics twice. So, so I had that. And even, um, two weeks before the London games, you know, I had another serious back spasm. I was already at my staging camp trying to get ready for London and I couldn't walk for four days. And I actually almost, uh, quit before London because I just couldn't see how I was going to be, ready and i was actually afraid of what people would think of me if i if i got on the block and didn't perform yeah i'm, I'm just trying to imagine because you do have the weight and the expectations of an entire nation on you people are very quick to congratulate but also extremely quick to criticize but in, in that time between london and you're deciding to stop 
in the seven years be- between that time and your coming back to competitive swimming, you were entrepreneurially busy with your wife and successfully so. Yeah. I think uh, we, we launched a couple of uh, businesses. Like, you know, we dabbled in the uh, fitness apparel uh, industry for a little bit. And, like, that was a lot of fun. Um, and now we've launched our online swimming school, Swimming Secrets. Um, and that's actually what got me back into the pool. It was actually a business decision to get into the water and film our curriculum while we were in Lebanon, which is her home country. That's where we got married. And uh, getting into the water, I kind of rediscovered my relationship with the water. Um, you know, because when I would try to swim on you know my years off, getting in the water just brought up a lot of painful uh, memories, a lot of painful emotions. But getting in the water, it kind of brought back that love, um, that relationship of the water again. And then I just felt so amazing that just I kind of questioned that. Okay, well, maybe this is my chance to come back and fall in love with the sport again. It's such a competitive sport. We're talking about, as you, as you well know, I mean, you're in the water. We're just watching the clock on the side of the pool, but we're talking about hundredths of a second between first and second, or maybe first and fourth. So you're in the pool. What, at what point did you realize, I can still do this, and I can still compete with these kids? It was actually, uh, it was, we were doing a small clinic for, uh, for a team of young swimmers uh, downtown Beirut at the university. And while you know we're teaching them, they were so excited to have us there, and they really wanted to see me swim fast. So I was like, okay, I'll get on the block and I'll do one like just 25 meters, and and just just give them a little bit of a show. So I had my wife film it, and later that evening after we got home, I timed the the, you know, the little sprint I did, and it was like right around what I would normally do when I was back in training. And so that's kind of the first time it kind of sparked. I was like, well, if I just did that without training, how much faster could I actually go? And, you know, I believe that I could get at least close to um, close to my best times. And, you know, leading off our relay, I was actually just off my uh, the time that I did to win the bronze medal in London. And then in the 50 free semifinal, I just barely missed my Canadian record, which was actually set during the full bodysuit era. So that performance actually was better if you factor in the swimsuit. Yeah, that's just an amazing accomplishment. So now you're in Tokyo with the uh, with the with the relay team and uh, the events coming up. Were there a lot of memories? Did you did you flash back to 2012 and the three previous Olympic Games, or was the focus entirely on what you were doing at that particular moment? Because that no, you had you, you had a lot of emotional issues. Like, that um, you definitely look back at previous uh, experiences because those are lessons and tools that you can use in uh, in the in the present. But I was definitely in a in a different mind frame this time because I didn't have that expectation. I I still had my own pressure um, of competition, and that's just the competitor in me. You know, you definitely want to get up, you definitely want to perform, you want to win. But I didn't have the pressure of the weight of of everyone's expectations weighing on me because this journey was uh, it was for myself, right? I was just I was just out there to, like I said, fall in love with the sport again. I remember being in that semifinal in the ready room, and you know, hearing the swimmers ahead of me having their names announced as, as I was walking out, and I just you know just basked in that moment, just like, like I'm back at the Olympics, and it was it was just it just felt absolutely incredible, and to be free to really enjoy that moment. What a terrific experience for you to be able to do that. You know, after the the highs and the lows of 2012 and the personal experiences, and to come back and get back into the Olympic environment and perform as you did, congratulations for everything you've done. And remind us, please, what the online swimming school is. 
Oh, and thank you so much. Um, the online swim school is uh, Swimming Secrets, so that's www.swimmingsecrets.com, and it's our entire freestyle um, mastery system that gets you right from the foundation, building up your stroke piece by piece all the way to the very technique that actually helped me become one of the fastest swimmers in the world. And anybody can learn it as long as they have access to the internet. I'm going to get on that. I'm getting on that. Oh, please do. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we talked politics and uh, it was October. No, I can't remember. October 21st? 2019, we had the last federal vote, and the liberals found themselves sliding from a majority government to minority, and they won with the lowest popular vote nationally for any winning party in a federal election in the history of Canada. So are they in better shape now? Are they poised to win a majority government? They think so. But we spoke uh, just a couple of weeks ago with Daryl Bricker, the president and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and they did polling for Global News, and uh, they're not so sure, Ipsos is not so sure, that the Liberals on a track to a majority government. Mr. Trudeau's personal popularity has dropped, and um, the Conservatives have come up by 2%, if I remember correctly. And the leaders, uh, Mr. O'Toole isn't doing particularly well, the leader of the Conservative Party, but Jagmeet Singh, who was a guest on this program three weeks ago, the leader of the federal NDP, he's doing better as far as Canadians uh, liking him is concerned. So what what's going to happen? What are the potentials here? Are we looking at another minority government and what would that entail? This is all material that I know our next guest understands far better than I do. Dwayne Bratt, Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Professor Bratt, good to talk to you again. It's been a while. What are we looking at? Going into the election, if it's called in the next couple of days, which parties are looking at what and which party? I mean, is anybody looking at a potential majority? Uh, the Liberals are, but it's going to be some tough slugging. Uh, they're going to have to... Uh, keep the seats that they won in 2019 and, and pick up more. And that's always tough for an incumbent uh, government. Um, and I think there's a reason that they want this election sooner rather than later, because the longer it goes on, the further away we start to get from uh, get away from COVID, then some of the other real weaknesses of, of the Trudeau government start to become more apparent. Uh, you know, it's only been a year or so since the Wee scandal. I think the SNC-Lavalin scandal helped bring down the government from a majority to to a minority. And the rise of the, the re-rise of the NDP is always a danger for the Liberals. When the NDP do poorly, uh, their support tends to go to the Liberals and and vice versa. So uh, watch watch the battles in Vancouver, in greater Vancouver, coming up in, in September. Is that going to be the hinge for, for the Liberal Party, or is it going to be Quebec? Uh, and they'll, they pretty much assume they have 905 in Ontario um, in, in the books, or should they even assume that? I think they are banking on, on 905. I mean, for them to win a majority, that's what they're going to have to do. But I think the areas that they think they can pick up some seats are in Quebec, are in B.C., and dare I say, here in Alberta, I think there's about four or five ridings that are now at play, which were not in 2019. In the 2019 election, 
the Liberals received about 14% of the popular vote in this province, which was their lowest performance in Canadian history. And the Conservatives swept with 33 out of 34 seats, 69% of the vote. But the Conservatives are not nearly as dominant now as they were two years ago, and there are some ridings in play. And ironically, winning a seat in Edmonton, winning a seat in Calgary, that may be enough for, for the Liberals, which which shows you just how weird this uh, this campaign is going to be. Yeah, I, I'm looking at Quebec uh, particularly because I lived there for nine years not so long ago, and I've talked to some people in Quebec, and where I knew that they were staunch liberals, th- this may surprise you, it certainly surprised me, staunch liberal supporters, traditionally liberal supporters, they're now more inclined to think Bloc Québécois because they don't consider the Bloc to be uh, really that much of a separatist party anymore, more of a more of a Quebec uh, representative party, and they really think that the Bloc's very good at getting for Quebec what the Bloc wants. The Bloc has been very successful in redefining itself uh, from a separatist party to sort of a Quebec first party. Um, they look to be on the ropes after uh, the 2008, especially the 2011 election. I mean, they were down to like five seats, uh, and the NDP took a lot of their vote away. Then, you know, Jack Layton dies, and, uh, and Thomas Mulcair can't really keep that, uh, that the, the number of NDP seats, and those are going to drop even more in this coming election, that outside of pockets of Quebec City, where the Conservatives are still have a, a foothold, and some of the stuff in uh, Gatineau, it's, it's Bloc versus Liberal. And uh, the Bloc uh, can prevent majority governments of any stripe. You know, if you, if you look back at the, at the history, when the Bloc is strong, you don't see a majority government. Now, I remember uh, when the Bloc... I remember, when the bloc when the, remember when the Bloc was the official opposition? <laughs> yeah, for a short <laughs> period of time it was. Yeah. Uh, and now they can't be the official opposition because you've got a United Conservative Party, but they can prevent either the Liberals or the Conservatives from winning a majority so, because so. they'll pull 50 seats away or 40 yeah. seats away. Yeah. Yeah. And that becomes so much more difficult mathematically. So in 2011 and 2015, when the Conservatives and Liberals won majority governments, it was because the bloc was quite weak. But we haven't seen majority governments since the reunification of the Conservative Party when the bloc is strong. It really is an interesting situation. The Conservatives in 2019 had Andrew Scheer. Yeah. And we all remember um, um, Peter McKay's quote after the election. Can't score on an empty net. Uh, So now they have Aaron O'Toole as their leader. And Mr. O'Toole, according to polling, has just not connected with Canadian voters. So is there um, a potential, and I asked uh, Daryl Bricker this question, is there a potential for a minority conservative government, Mr. Bricker said, if there's a low voter turnout and if the conservative base turns out in large numbers and if one or two other factors were to fall in place, and there's the possibility for a minority conservative government. This is not what Mr. O'Toole wants to be going into an election campaign with. I mean, that just is. Yeah, there's a, there's a there's lot. Too many of goalies there. There's too many goalies. <laughs> yeah, uh, but um, Trudeau's not going to run against Darren O'Toole. 
Trudeau is running against Doug Ford and Jason Kenney. Right. right. Um, he's going to run against the conservative premiers. Yeah. And uh, that's become quite quite apparent. And, uh, you know, uh, Jason Kenney gave an interview last week expecting that he's going to be a campaign focus and said, you know, I ran against Trudeau provincially and federally, so he's going to run against uh, me. And Ford, Andrew Scheer, locked him in a, in a box for that 2019 election. Ford's popularity, though, seems to wax and wane um, since 2019. There were moments during COVID that he was spiking up and then moments that he was plummeting down. But I'm not sure he's willing to sit in the box again as he did in 2019. So, so what's the role of conservative premiers in this campaign? What's your call on what's going to happen? If there is an election call, and let's say we have a date for the end of September, what's your, what's your call on how it turns out? If, if I was to look now, I, I think Trudeau will get reelected, and it's really going to depend on whether it's a, it's a majority and a, and a minority. The, the margins are so slim for him, um, and he's got to pick up seats uh, fighting multiple fronts. So in Quebec, he's fighting against the Bloc Québécois. In B.C., he's fighting against the NDP. In the 905 and in Alberta, he's fighting against the Conservatives. Right. That's what you get when you're an incumbent government is you're being challenged by different parties, depending on where you are uh, in the in the country. So I think that's the issue at play. If the issue is about covid and the covid response, I think that's what the liberals would like, because I think they they can say, you know, the vaccine rollout looked bad in February. looks really great in August. Look at how much money we spent in support. But if the issues become about the economy, if the issues become about jobs, if the issues become about ethics and character, um, if the if the issues become um, about Trudeau himself, then the Liberals are in trouble. Yeah, Jody Wilson-Raybould's book comes out in October. She was on this program, and it's uh, the, the the title is Indian in the Cabinet, and she very clearly spoke about uh, why she told us why. That's the title, and I just keep thinking, this, if this book were to roll out before the vote, that could hurt Mr. Trudeau. But I also spoke, Dwayne, with a very strong liberal supporter just a couple of, well, a week or two ago, and he said, what I want is for Trudeau to lose, this is a liberal, I want Trudeau to lose to a minority conservative government, and then I want Trudeau to be gone and Mark Carney to be the leader, so then we can have a majority government within two years. So I, I don't know if that's backroom thinking or that's just more liberal thinking. Well, if you if you look at, there was a sense by 2015 that the Harper government was tired, that much of, there had been a lot of turnover in cabinet and not a lot of new blood that have merged into the conservatives. Here we are six years into the liberal government. And, you know, he ran on this team. It was going to be team approach. Look at all these strong people I brought into cabinet. Those people have all, a lot of those have left yep. now. Yep. Um, and there really hasn't been new blood in, which is why Christia Freeland tends to hold almost every portfolio, um, because they haven't brought new people in. Even Mark Carney, you know, turned them down for, for this election. Yep. And so it, it's amazing how quick that can, that can happen. In, in Harper's case, it took almost 10 years. In the case of Trudeau, it took, you know, five. <laughs> 
We don't want to provide any tactical advantage to the Taliban or to others who may uh, try to bring harm to uh, those those who are remaining in Afghanistan. And, and by getting into too much detail, uh, we're essentially uh, tipping our hand as to how much progress we're making uh, with regards to the operation and who may be left uh, still to, to resettle in Canada. There's the uh, federal immigration minister, Marco Mendocino, who also is quoted on Twitter, uh, writing, we will do right by those who did right by us. Well, it's taken a little time to start to uh, do right by those who did right by us. And it took a lot of public pressure over a protracted period of time, actually. But there has been talk about the potential or the possibility of uh, Afghan interpreters arriving in this country today. The first flight that came in a few days ago carried largely, from what we're told, embassy personnel, not the interpreters, who find themselves in terrible situations. We spoke yesterday with uh, Sajad, who we also knew as Left Behind Alex when he joined us on this program for a number of years. Actually, 2015 was the first time we spoke with him from Afghanistan when his life was under threat, and he talked very clearly and very directly about the threat the interpreters are still living with every day and how just a few days ago one of his friends um, was murdered by the Taliban and his friend's family as well mentioned that yesterday. So they're living, I, I don't know, I guess maybe they're just living hour by hour. I'm having difficulty reaching the interpreters we've spoken with, and quite recently. Uh, Major General Dean Milner was the final commanding officer of Canada's forces during the NATO operation in Afghanistan, he's been very good to us with his time, talking about uh, what he and his his fellow uh, generals have uh, tried to prevail on the federal government to get done on behalf of the interpreters. And uh, Major General Dean Milner back with us. General, thank you very much for the time. Are you aware of any meaningful progress to get the interpreters out to this country? And we're talking about today. Well, it, it's definitely progressing. Um we know that for sure, but never never as fast as we'd like. Um, we don't know exactly who's coming out of theater. Uh, as you know, the, the minister did say that he's, uh, he doesn't want to tell us the details for security reasons. Um, very small numbers so far. Um, we're not hearing that our, the, the interpreters, those that really soldiered alongside of us, um, we're, we're not hearing many if 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 at all are, are coming out so there there's still a, lo- a lot of work that needs to be done uh the situation uh as mentioned is deteriorating faster a couple of the main main um provinces have, have fallen uh capitals of the provinces have fallen kunduz which is just a little bit to the north an important uh, area has uh, fallen to the taliban so you know, time is of the essence, and uh, and uh, we really do need to be moving fast. Yeah, the uh, the interpreters, I gathered just from the conversation we had yesterday with our friend who was an interpreter for the Canadian Forces and who has been able to get out of Afghanistan by his own means and is now in the United States. He said that, uh, that they're living day by day, and they're just they're terrified every day they're hold up in apartments in various uh, places in Afghanistan as the Taliban hunt them down. So one of the questions uh, that we ask at this end of the uh, of the uh, of the issue is do we know where they are? Do we know where the interpreters are? Do we know how to get to them and get them out? Yes, I mean there's um you know we have uh you know we have 
put or help put uh, the interpreters and, and workers in, in different locations. Um, some are in hotels. Uh, we, we have uh, a few people on the ground that are helping them do this. Um, we're not as well connected to the government as we'd like to be because um, I think we, we could be helping them immensely. Um, but, uh, but, yes, the situation is deteriorating, and uh, the, the government has a lot more work to, to be done. There's further complications, too, because President Ganey, um, who is, is, to be honest, not really helping us out one little bit, has said that they have to produce passports. Now, we're trying to, to work around this. I think the government's trying to find a solution to it. But that, that could take a month uh, for a lot of these interpreters and workers to get a passport. So that, that's just unacceptable. Um, so th- that's, that's a further complication that is just making this uh, a lot more complicated than it needs to be. Yeah, and if, if the uh, Afghani government is saying the interpreters need to get passports, before they can leave, uh, that would just pinpoint where they are if they had to start filling in or filling out applications. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It, it's it just it just it won't work. Um, so the government's got to work harder at this. They've got to find out some kind of workaround. You know, I mean, they they need to be essentially putting these people onto airplanes and getting them the, the hell out of there. Uh, they they've got to. I know they've got a third uh, location all organized that they need to be getting them out fast. I'm talking to interpreters that are scared stiff. They, they uh, you know, the Taliban are about, they're, they're now taking more of the provinces and districts, as I mentioned. Uh, unfortunately, I'm hearing lousy news about how the Afghan National Army is fighting. Um, they're, they're not fighting for the government. Uh, I hear the Special Forces uh, troops are, are fighting well. Matter of fact, the Air Force is fighting well, uh, but um, the, the situation is, is is not very good, and it continues to deteriorate. Um, so we, we've got to we've got to work fast. Time is not on our side, and I'd like to I'd like to hear a lot more progress. Yeah, we we need to have our government because we're a first world nation with supposedly the most sophisticated capabilities, or some of the most sophisticated capabilities of communicating and getting things done in the world. We can't just uh, continue to roll out um, sound bites written by third-party bureaucrats for the ministers. We need to get, we need to see action. We see, need to see the interpreters coming to this country, and 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 it should be happening daily, shouldn't it, General? Yes, and I and I, I'm, I'm hearing you know that that flights are you know that there's good chance that there's you know going to be flights coming out of here um, very soon. But again, they're, they're not connecting with interpreters. They're, they're not connecting with a number of people, and, and, and I don't understand why. Uh, it, it is, uh, um, I just, uh, there's a lot more that the government needs to be doing. Those on the ground, they're not connecting with everybody. They're not communicating well. And, uh, and I want to see a lot more progress. And, uh, and I, guess, I, I guess we're going to see it, but, uh, but time is not on our side. Well, again, the minister said and the prime minister said similar things. We will do right by those who did right by us, but not yet. I mean, that's my, I added that, but. Yeah. No, I, I think everybody's saying that we want to do the right thing, but the the devil's in the detail, and yeah. this is not an easy, easy um, uh, operation. So we, we need to be putting everything forward. 
Um, I'm sure that we're working with the United States. I know they're challenged with the exact same problems. You know, we have a we, we have a an Afghan president who probably doesn't want his his smart young people to leave. Uh, but the, the bottom line is he's not leading his country. He's not. He's a, he's he's allowing this. To, nobody's supporting him. The, the 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 army's not fighting for him, and uh, so it, it's further complicating things. Yeah. But yeah, we we've got a lot of work to do, and and I'm I'm really hoping to see some some progress and some connection with our interpreters uh, in, in the near future. And if that doesn't happen, if we don't get them out, they're going to die. They, they, they will absolutely die. And I'm hearing that, you know, as, as we talk and discuss with the interpreters. And again, there's been early connection with them, but we, we believe they're taking the embassy personnel out first, which I, 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 I don't really understand that, but I'm sure they have a reason for it. But the interpreters are the ones that have, we've, we've brought them in from places like Kandahar and Laskargar and Helmand. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're jammed into these places in, in Kabul, but nobody's reaching out and talking to them and supporting them. Yeah, and and I, I really don't understand why that is. That's awful. Well, I can tell you why they brought the embassy personnel out, because it's easy and it's a photo op. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, that's, uh, that's, that's again, I, I, I don't know enough, to be honest, um, to say what the details are, but again, I, until there's better connection with the inter- interpreters and others, um, right? It just you know we're just we're, we're going to have to keep keep the the pressure on. Yeah, General Milner, it's uh, it's very fortunate for the interpreters that you and uh, your your former f- uh, your fellow former commanders of the Canadian Forces are working hard on behalf of the interpreters. We now have to get the government this federal government of ours, to perform up to par and do the things and perform uh, the, the, the tasks that they've promised they're going to perform because otherwise we're going to have a body count. And uh, I would suggest to all politicians, that's not the sort of thing that's going to help you win elections. But anyway, that's just me. Yeah. I don't expect you to comment, General. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I, I just... I just, I just want to see more progress, and yes, I want sir. to see it fast, and I want to see it, you know, I want to see communication uh, to the to those interpreters. So this is they they've set it a moral obligation, so we we've got to meet that. And um, again, it's uh, um, well, I, I'm sure that they're 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 working hard on it, but we're we're just not seeing the results yet. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.